So John 14, please, verse 16. Last week, I had a look at Ephesians 4, and um, we talked about the gift of people, of men, God's grace gift to the church. And we talked about that in terms of preaching gifts, uh, the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, and the teacher. And we had a look at what that meant, and I trust that um, something of an understanding of those gifts came as I, as I preached that. And I just felt as I was doing that and I was preparing this week that I really would like to look at the whole thing of the Holy Spirit. Thank you very much. The Holy Spirit and how He gives, what gifts He gives to the church. And again, the Holy Spirit is given as a gift to the church to edify and build up the church, to strengthen the church, to encourage the church, and to build up the people. And it's been an amazing thing to see as, as we've, uh, God has been ministering over the last couple of weeks how much of an emphasis has come again in terms of the prophetic word and encouraging gifts in people. And so I thought it would be a good thing to do that and to have a look at who the Holy Spirit is before we look at the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to the church. All right, and so I'd like to do that as a foundation um, this morning. And if you're in John 14, 16, you'll see the verse there says, this is Jesus uh, about to say goodbye to his, his, his saying goodbye to his, his disciples in essence. He's preparing them. And he says this to them, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. It's an amazing promise, isn't it? I will give you another helper to be with you forever. And so that's the title of my message this morning, Another Helper. The Holy Spirit, another helper. So let's have a look at who the Holy Spirit is. And we as Christians have a unique... Um, Theology in that we preach and we, the gospel talks about God three in one. We celebrate the Trinity as Christians. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And if you weren't around at Christmas time, I, I preached a message over Christmas called, Though He Became, Though He Was Rich for Your Sake, He Became Poor, which talked about the incarnation, that what we hold to as Christians and what we celebrate at Christmas time above everything else is that the fullness of God, God the Father, God the Son, uh, the fullness of God the Father came to dwell with us as God the Son. God was fully a man, and yet fully who He said He was. He was the eternal God come to live with us. Okay? And that's really what we celebrate at Christmas. For me, that's the importance of Christmas. If there was no Christmas, if there was no baby at Bethlehem, there would have been no Savior born. If there was no Savior born, we would be in big trouble. And so that's why we celebrate Christmas. Forget about all the other stuff, all right? We celebrate at Christmas time the incarnation, the fullness of God coming to dwell here on earth with us as people. And if you want a fuller explanation of that, please go and listen on the podcast because much of what I've tried to preach in the last two months is a cohesive thing of thought. It's going somewhere. Unless you understand the Trinity, you can't understand Jesus. If you don't understand Jesus, you'll never understand His work or what He came to do. All right, so we need as Christians to understand the fullness of the Trinity. And so go and listen to the, the podcast. T Tim Keller says this if you think that's uh, going to be difficult, all right, in terms of trying to understand the, the Trinity, listen to what Tim Keller says. He says, The gospel has been described as a pool in which a toddler can wade and yet an elephant can swim. It's beautiful, isn't it? The gospel is understandable in its simplicity, and also more fully as we grow in God, we begin to understand more and more of the depths and the heart and the breadth of the gospel. So don't let it put you off, okay? 
this kind of mystery around the Trinity because actually it's a profound thing that we need to understand. So I want to say that um, there's an assumption that because the Trinity is somehow mysterious that we kind of just get on as Christians without thinking about it and kind of just getting on. Just kind of the Trinity is somewhere there in, in the background, all right? And I think something of the, the practice of the church, when I say the church, I'm talking about the church at large, seems to reflect that assumption. Because even though there's some formal prayer in the traditional church, for example, in the Anglican church, and uh, there are some prayers that are recited, and the formal creed of the Trinity is recited, there are rarely any messages preached about the Trinity. Uh, and to my shame, as I was just thinking about this, I think the time, I can't remember last when I did preach about the Trinity, other than the message that I preached at Christmas. And so I'm not pointing fingers at anyone. I'm saying for my own life that I want to get back to the place of really trusting God to speak to me clearly about the fullness of the Trinity. And I want to encourage you in that journey as well. What is interesting to me, though, is as we looked at John chapter 1 over Christmas time. John, in writing his gospel, he doesn't seem to have any nervousness about talking about the Trinity. And if, if that's the deep end of theology, the Trinity, well, John just jumps right in. In John chapter 1, in the first part of his gospel, he just gets right in the deep end. He jumps off the deep end and he dives right in and he just says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I mean, that's the deep end of theology. That is already, he's introducing the Trinity straight up. He's not saying when you mature enough or when you've grown up in Jesus a little bit, I'll talk to you about the Trinity. No, he, the first, the, the entry point of, of, of his gospel is the Trinity. And so he just jumps right in. And I had a look over Christmas. I'm just going to briefly say these things again. He says seven things in those first chapter of John. He says, one, in the beginning was the Word. In other words, that speaks of the eternity of the Word. The Word always was. It has no beginning and when all things began, the Word was there already. All right? The eternity of the Word. Secondly, he says the Word was with God. And that speaks about the personality of the Word, that the Word is a person. Uh, the power of the, that fulfills God's purposes is the power of a distinct personality. All right? Who is in relationship with God the Father. That's the second thing he says. And then he says the Word was God. And so we see in that that the Word it's the, deity of, it's the deity of God. Uh, although he's distinct from the Father, he, he's not a created creature, he is divine. Okay, He's divine in himself, just as the Father is divine in himself. And it, the fourth thing that John says in John chapter 1, he says, through him all things were made. And the word is creative, and through the word all things come. And everything that the Father made, the word was his agent. And we're going to look at that a little later. And then he goes on fifthly and says, in him was life. The Word brings life to everything. I believe that there's no physical life in the universe, however many billions of galaxies there are. There's no physical life in this universe that, apart, that exists apart from the Word. The Word brings life and, and sustains life. Every single corner of the universe is sustained by the Word of, of, of God. Then he says, sixthly, the, the, that the, 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 life, the, the, the life was the light of men. And what we talked about out of that was that the Word reveals things to us. As it gives life, it gives light. And as it gives light, we can understand, and it reveals things to us. And lastly, it says the Word became flesh. So, there's the fullness of the incarnation in terms of the baby and the manger as the eternal Word of God. 
John introduces there God the Father, God the Son in a very, very distinct way, but he doesn't, he doesn't leave it there because we now have got to John 14 and what, God, what, what um, John does in terms of just taking the words of Jesus is he's got something else that he wants us to learn about the Godhead. And so in John 6, 14, 16, in the context of him, uh, his last conversation with the disciples, he says this, I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Man, that's an amazing promise. Jesus saying, I will give you another helper. The word helper is fascinating. When you read different translations of, the, of this scripture in different versions of the Bible, there's so many words that are used to describe the Holy Spirit. He's described as the helper, the comforter, the counselor, the advocate. All those words are are very descriptive, very powerful words. They describe somebody who's going to encourage you, support you, care for you, uh, assist you, be concerned about your welfare, take an interest in your life. That's how Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit and says the Holy Spirit is that kind of person. I mean, that's a remarkable kind of person who's a comfort to you, who's a, who takes an interest in your welfare, who's always thinking of your best. Don't you think that's a remarkable person? And I would, I would love to have some friends like that in my life that are, are interested, genuinely interested in my welfare. So John uses that word helper there. He uses another word, though, a little word. He says, God, the Father will send another helper, which implies this, that Jesus is saying he was the first helper. Because God's going to send another helper just like him. So, in fact, what Jesus is saying is that how he had loved his disciples, how he had taken care of them, how he instructed them in the three years of ministry that he had with them, how he had walked with them, how he would shared his life with them. They saw him uh, completely for who he was. He says, there's going to be another helper that the Father sends who's exactly like I was to you. He's going to be that to you. And he's going to be with you forever. Man, that's a wonderful thing. That's an amazing promise. So Jesus is saying, the same way that I cared for you and loved you, the Holy Spirit is going to do exactly the same for you. That's his promise to us. And he says in verse 17 and verse 26, he calls the new comforter, he says, he says, he calls the comforter the spirit of truth, and he also calls him the Holy Spirit. And so there, Jesus himself speaks of the Holy Spirit in terms of deity and says the Holy Spirit is God. All right? So now there's another aspect of the, of the Trinity that we are beginning to understand. And so in the Old Testament, God's Word, whenever God's Word is used, it speaks of his speech, his, his almighty speech. And uh, God's Spirit is described by being called his almighty breath. His breath. Okay? And both of those phrases are used in the Old um, Testament, as J.R. Packer says, to convey the thought of God's power in action. God's power in action. And we can see that in terms of, uh, for example, Genesis 1 verse 2, where in the account of creation, it's the Scripture simply uses both of those words. It says, the Spirit, the breath of God, was hovering over the water, and God said the Word of God, and, and then it was. That's what it says. The, the two descriptions of the Word of God, the breath of God working together and the power of God being put into action. And exactly the same thing is said in Psalm 33 verse 6, for example, where it says, by the Word of the Lord, 
the heavens were made, and the starry host by the Spirit, the breath of his mouth. I was just thinking it's an amazing thing uh, if you imagine that God spoke the heavens into being, and then just with his breath, he went, and all the stars were created. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That's what it's saying. The breath of God created all that. And I always, uh, I love that, um, uh, in, uh, if you've read C.S. Lewis's books or seen the movies, Aslan, the lion, which is a picture of Christ. What happens when people are petrified into stone? What does Aslan do? He breathes on them. He breathes his breath and they come to life. It's a picture of what God does. Isn't that beautiful? He breathes on us with his breath and life comes. And that's exactly what God did in terms of creating the world. So what Jesus is really doing in this portion of, of John uh, 14, he's, he's, he's creating a parallel to what has already been said by John in chapter 1. He's saying that the divine spirit of God is a person, and he confirms that by calling him the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 17, verse 11, he speaks of God in the same way and says God is the Holy Father of us all. And so here, John, in John's Gospel, we see that what the Holy Spirit has come to do, the Spirit's mission, if you like, on earth, is to continue the purpose and the will of the Father and the Son. That's why the Spirit was sent, to continue the ministry of the Father, God the Father, and God the Son. And we can see these things all connected. I'm trying to make this as simple as possible, and I hope it's not confusing to you, right? Because I'm really trying to just uh, give something of the heart of, of this theology of what the Trinity is. And uh, John 5.23 says, God the Father sends the Son. John 14.26 says that the Father who will send the Spirit to do the will of Jesus and, re- and represent Him with authority. That's, and we read that already. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, that's in Jesus' name, He will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance all that I have said to you. It's an amazing promise, isn't it? That the Holy Spirit will remind us of everything that Jesus said. And just as Jesus came in the name of the Father, acting on His behalf, doing what the Father willed, speaking the Father's words, so too the Holy Spirit comes in Jesus' name to act in the world as an agent of, uh, an agent of Jesus, if you like, to be a witness to Jesus, to testify to Jesus. Those are the words the Scripture uses. Right. And then also in, in, in John 15, uh, verse 26, there's a, a, another description. It says that the Son will send the Spirit from the Father. As the Father sent the Son into the world, so too will the Son send the Spirit into the world. And uh, uh, that, that verse is, is the following. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. So when we put these things together, this is how it works. There's a relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Son is subject to the Father because the Son was sent by the Father. God so loved the world that He sent His Son, Jesus, to us. All right? And the Holy Spirit is also subject to the Father because the Spirit is sent by the Father in Jesus' name. All right? That's what we've read this morning. And thirdly, the Spirit is also subject to Jesus as the Son as well as the Father because John 20 verse 22 says that the Spirit is sent by the Son as well as by the Father. And so we see here this amazing thing of the Trinity in relationship working together. The Father sending the Son, the Son being subject to the Father, and we sang this morning, the Holy Spirit and Jesus only did what they saw the Father do. And so there's this amazing relationship within the Godhead of the Godhead honoring each other. 
And the point I want to stress about, out of John 14, verse 16, is this, is that Jesus promises and he says, I will send the Holy Spirit another helper, and this is what I love, and he will be with you forever. Man, that's great joy. That's, that isn't, that's great comfort. He will be with you forever. He's coming in the same way that Jesus was the comforter. Jesus says, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. He will be your comforter in the same way that I was a comfort to you. So will the Spirit be to you and he will be with you forever. That's amazing. So my point this morning is a very simple one because it seems to me in the, in the, in the life of the church, the person and the work of God the Father and God the Son are preached and taught and discussed and continue to be a source of great revelation and encouragement to, every, to, to the whole church. But I want to say that when I look at the church, I see that the person and the work of the Holy Spirit is largely ignored by the church. Largely ignored by the church. And some theologians have even been as strong as this to say that the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, is the Cinderella of Christian doctrine. Cinderella, the forgotten one, just somehow there. And I think many Christians are clear about the work and the person of Jesus, but they're completely unclear about the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so people talk about the Holy Spirit in various ways, uh, sort of muddled ways. Some people talk of the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, in some kind of vague cultural way that actually the Spirit of God is, 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 the, is the thing in, in the culture that sort of brings pressure on people to be religious and to kind of be moral. That's the Holy Spirit. Uh, or some think that the Holy Spirit is uh, that's which inspires great moral courage in everybody. So like, for example, Gandhi it was a great moral teacher, was somehow inspired by the Spirit of God, which is, inspires all truth in everybody. There's an amazing description in Acts chapter 19, verse 2, where Paul gets to Ephesus and he says, have you um, heard about baptism and the following things? And he says, have you received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And you know what the Ephesian church says to him? He says, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. That's what the Ephesian church says. You can go and check it out for yourself. Acts 19, verse 2. They don't even know that there's a Holy Spirit. And I want to say, it's ex- ex- extraordinary thing that in the church, somehow we can live in this contradiction that we have an honoring of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and at the same time, people carry a burden for Christ and His gospel, and at the same time, ca- care so little for the person of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. I think most of us would be aware that if there wasn't any incarnation, there wouldn't be any atonement. If there wasn't for Bethlehem, there would be no Calvary. And we all understand that if, if that wasn't so, we would be lost forever. We would be in big trouble without a Savior. <laughs> but there's so many that have no real idea of what a difference the Holy Spirit has made and continues to make in the world. And that is a profound mistake. I want to pose a question to you this morning. How can we say that we honor Jesus and that we honor the Father when we ignore, and by ignoring, we dishonor the Holy Spirit 
And by dishonoring the Holy Spirit, we actually dishonor God the Father and God the Son who sent the Holy Spirit to be with us as our comforter forever. So I've got two very simple things for you this morning. And this has been a real joy this week just to think about these things for myself. The importance of the Holy Spirit and the important work of the Holy Spirit. I want to say two very simple things. Without the Holy Spirit, number one, without the Holy Spirit, there would be no gospel. There would be no gospel without the Holy Spirit. And there would be no Christianity in the world at all without the Holy Spirit. And I want to unpack that with you this morning. First point. Without the Holy Spirit, there would be no gospel. There would be no New Testament. There would be no Christianity in the world. I was just reflecting on this very, very um, simple thing. You know, when Jesus left the world, what did he say to his disciples? He said, you are going to be my witnesses to the world. He says that in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You're going to be my witnesses to the world. And I was thinking about that. Was that really a smart move? <laughs> because when you look at the gospels, the, the disciples just didn't get it. They consistently didn't understand. He t- Jesus told these simple stories about his kingdom and about who, who he was. And he said, I want to tell these to you in forms of parables. And he tells all these parables, and the disciples don't get it. He always has to explain to them again what he's talking about. I mean, were they good candidates to be witnesses for Jesus? Because consistently right to the end, Peter denies him as the Christ. I mean, and then he says, no, to you guys, you, you that didn't understand, who didn't get what I'm on about, actually, you're going to be my witnesses? I want to say, gee, Jesus, that is an amazing statement of belief in people. <laughs> I mean, was that fair? Was it a fair thing for Jesus to ask, for them to be his, his, his witnesses? I mean, wasn't it just a matter of time that with all the good intention in the world that the disciples would start to get it wrong, they'd start to mix in some of their own kind of ideas into the gospel, and uh, soon things would just be reduced to a kind of mishwash of goodwill and some nice spiritual thoughts, and the gospel would get along, get lost along the way. I think these are good questions to think about. And I just feel the Scripture is quite clear, because for me, the answer is a resounding no. Why is it a resounding no? Because Jesus says, that he's going to send the Holy Spirit to them. And if you read John in those 14, 15, and 16, those chapters, he says, the Holy Spirit will teach you all truth. The Holy Spirit will remind you of what I said to you, what you've already been taught. He'll bring those things to memory, so you will constantly have them in your hearts. So where's Jesus' confidence? It's, it's, Jesus' confidence is in that the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, is coming, who will keep his disciples in all truth, will remind them of the truth, will help them to understand where there's error so that they won't lose the truth along the way. That is what Jesus is saying. It's a profound thing. Verse 26, He, the Counselor, will teach you all things. John 16, verse 12, I have still many things to say to you, but cannot um, bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine, and He will declare it to you. That's where the confidence of Jesus is in, is in the Holy Spirit. But there are three little things in that portion I've just read. Jesus clearly says, the Spirit will make known to them all that the Father wishes to be made known. Secondly, what is yet to come, something of the future, the Spirit will make clear to His disciples. And three, take what God's, 
what is God's and make it known to them. Those are amazing things. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And God's promise to his, Holy, to, to his disciples is that through the Holy Spirit, they will speak the words of Jesus. They'll speak the words of Jesus like they will speak on his behalf. And so they would be able to say, these are the words of Jesus. And that's exactly what happened. Because when you read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, what does Paul say? He's speaking about glorious salvation. And he says this, It is written, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. What an amazing promise. Huh? Fantastic promise. Verse 10, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him. So, also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. How do we understand the things freely given to us by God? By the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he concludes, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but by taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Amen. So it was the Holy Spirit that revealed the truth of the gospel to the apostles who first wrote it down and wrote the New Testament and enabled them to communicate it faithfully and truthfully. And that's why we have the gospel written down. And so if we didn't have the Holy Spirit, we would not have that revelation of the apostles. We would not have it written down. We would have no New Testament, no word. We weren't for the Holy Spirit. And that's still true for us because we are those that as we are transformed by the gospel and the gospel changes us from the inside out, as we are transformed by the gospel, not by trying really hard, not trying by being moral people, but because the Spirit of God lives in us, by the power of the Spirit, we are able to communicate that to others and bring life, not by the, our cleverness, but by the Spirit of God and His conviction that comes upon people, and that's how people get saved. And that's, uh, I read um, this week a guy called Greg Gilbert, and he said this, the, the advance of the gospel continues as God has determined that the gospel would advance through the spoken words of his people. That is, through the mouths of those who themselves have embraced the good news about Jesus and have known the forgiveness that comes from him. Man, that is profound. If you're trying to communicate to other people and you have not experienced the grace of God, the forgiveness of God in your own life, all you're going to communicate is good ideas, moral things that are going to put burdens on other people and actually become an absolute legalism in their lives. We have to communicate the grace of God that we have experienced ourselves that comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. Are you with me? So that's the first thing. Without the Holy Spirit, no New Testament, no revelation, no writing of the apostles. The work of the Holy Spirit is amazing. Second thing I want to say, without the Holy Spirit, there would be no faith. 
There would be no new birth. There would be no Christians <laughs> without the work of the Holy Spirit. There's a verse that you might know well, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, that says that although the light of the gospel is shining, it says the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Do you remember that verse? The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Well, it's obvious that if you're blind, you cannot see. So what Paul is writing to Corinthian church is saying the God of this world has blinded people and they cannot see the light of the gospel. And uh, that's why Jesus says a, a wonderful thing to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is an interesting man because Nicodemus is a religious man. He's a moral man. He's a God-fearing man in some ways. He's a God-fearing man. He's a part of the religious institution of the day. And Jesus speaks to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And what does he say to Nicodemus? He says, and Nicodemus is a picture of all religious people. Jesus says a profound thing, John, to all religious people everywhere in the world, present, past, and future. Jesus says to religious people, he says this, an inevitable consequence of Unbelief is caused by not being regenerate. That's what, it, that's what it's, I'm saying it in a fancy way. But what does Jesus say? You must be born again to see the kingdom of God. All unbelief in our lives is because we have not been regenerated. You understand what I'm trying to say? Yeah? So if we're trying to live from religion, from doing the, run for the, uh, the right thing, everything that is motivated that is not from faith is sin. It doesn't bring life. Are you with me? And in fact, Jesus says in verse 11, he points, he carries on in this conversation with Nicodemus and he says, you people do not accept our testimony. In other words, Jesus is recognizing that the words of the gospel that he's preaching not seeming to produce any conviction in them, uh, any and they're still held trapped by this unbelief, they, this blindness. They can't see the truth of the gospel. And so that does raise some serious questions for us as Christians and uh, as those that preach the gospel. Does it mean that we shouldn't preach the gospel? Is Jesus saying because the, you know, the minds of the people are held captive by the God of this world and they, they're blind and they can't see? Does it mean that we shouldn't evangelize? Does it mean it's all a waste of time? Does it mean that our attempts to evangelize are, are, are doomed to failure? Well, again... The answer is absolutely, completely no. Why? Because Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will abide in his church and the Holy Spirit will constantly testify to Christ. Amen. And so just as the, the Holy Spirit revealed and, and inspired the apostles in the first early centuries of the church, now, the Holy Spirit brings to light. He illuminates for us, for you and I. He opens blind eyes. He restores vision, spiritual vision. He enables those that are blind and cannot see. He enables them to see God's truth. He is the one that brings to revelation. It's the kindness of the Holy Spirit working in people's lives. It's His kindness that leads people to repentance. It's His kindness that shows that we need Him. In fact, it's His kindness that shows us that Jesus is God's Son. And that's when John, if you want to just write another scripture down, John 16, verse 7. When the Spirit comes, He will convince the world of sin and of righteousness 
and of judgment. You don't have to convince people of that. Just preach the good news in your life, through your life, and the Holy Spirit will convict people of their need of God, their repentance from sin, and that they need Him desperately in their lives. And so I want to just say, as I'm bringing this to a conclusion, it's good that we understand and that we're able to speak clearly as Christians of what we believe. You know, this is what I believe. This is what I'm rooted in. But I'm absolutely convinced of this, that no, not one of us can argue anyone into the kingdom. None of us can argue anyone into the kingdom. None of us can prove people into the kingdom. No one can prove the truth of the claims of Christianity except the Holy Spirit. He sovereignly, he, he moves sovereignly on people's lives. He chooses and he says, I choose you. And he reveals to them and enables them to, to, to the scales to fall off their eyes so that they can see. And it's he alone who can convince people and he convinces men and women in their hearts the truth of the gospel. Just Jesus alone. And so I want to encourage you this morning as we go forward as a church this year. Are we going to put our faith in clever presentation in a really hot band, hiring the best preachers from all over the world and paying lots of money to have the best preachers come and preach, having great lights and slick programs where we just everything is just done brilliantly in the hope that that's going to get people in. <laughs> or are we, going to, are we going to, on our knees, acknowledge the need of the Holy Spirit to do those things for us? that we can do the best we can. We can preach as best we can. We can lead worship as best we can. We can organize and administrate things as, as best as we can, but ultimately at the end of the day, that doesn't win people to Christ. What wins the people to Christ is that the Holy Spirit is working in their hearts and convicting them. And that's where we need to be putting our prayer and our energy into saying, God, we trust you. We trust you. We trust you to move. We are faithful, we'll invite, we'll encourage, we'll do what we can, but God, at the end of the day, your Spirit is the one that brings people to repentance, and we, Holy Spirit, we honor you constantly in that process. All right? So what does Paul say? I mean, that's exactly what Paul said. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 1. He says, when I came to you, brothers, talking to the Corinthian church, did not, I did not come to you proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. For I decided to know nothing amongst you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And when I was with you in weakness and in fear, with much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the power of God. That your faith might rest not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Man, that's my prayer for this year, for us as a, as a church, that we would see increasingly the power of God. The, the Scripture says wherever the Word is preached, there will be signs following. And the signs that we need to be looking for are people coming to repentance, people's lives changing, people, their marriages becoming richer, their parenting, having Jesus at the center, being outward-focused people that are, are, are so consumed with the love of God themselves that they cannot help but speak to the world of the love of God. That's the kind of signs we're looking for. And we're looking for healing. That physical bodies are healed. And emotional things are healed. That's what we're looking for. That's a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Not in our wisdom, not in our cleverness, not in our good programs, not in our hot musicians, 
And I love all that stuff. I love worship. But at the end of the day, it's the donkey. It's not the presence of God. It's the donkey. It's the songs are just donkeys that we ride to get to the presence of God. I know God is with us all the time, but you hear, you hear what I'm trying to say? They're not the thing. The audiovisual is the donkey. It ain't the thing. The building is the donkey. It's just that we can get something where people can meet. It's not the thing. So, concluding, point three. What should we do then? What's our response to the Holy Spirit, considering all of this that I've tried to share this morning? Well, I think it, it demands of us all, and I speak to myself primarily, there is a question that all of us have to answer honestly for ourselves every single one of us as an individual. And the question is simply this. Do we honor the Holy Spirit? Do we recognize who He is? And by recognize Him, uh, recognize the work that He does? Or do we ignore Him and ignore His work and by so doing that dishonor God the Father who sent Him and God the Son who sent Him? And there are various ways that we can do that in our life. And I want to give you three little things and that this won't take long. We can dishonor the Holy Spirit in our faith by having a lack of faith, by not really trusting God for our future, not really trusting God that He is who He said He is. Why do I say that? Well, if we truly acknowledge the authority of the Word of God, the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, including the parts that we don't like, that we'd like to skip over, If we don't hold on to this word as the inspired word of God, completely inspired, and if that's not how we read it and receive it and respond to it, if we don't do that, we dishonor the Holy Spirit because He's the one that gave us the word. Yeah? Secondly, in our lives. We can, we can dishonor the Holy Spirit in our lives. Why? Because if we're not those that apply the word, when the word comes and we hear and we just know in our knower, in that little quiet place of our hearts, we know that God is speaking and we refuse to apply it. We just harden ourselves a little bit. No, no, not, not today, Lord, tomorrow. Tomorrow I'll, I'll be more forgiving with my wife. Not today. Today I'll just harden myself a little bit. More comfortable for me to do tomorrow. Or I'll just insist on my opinion for today. Let's harden ourselves in the moment. And we don't allow God to apply the words by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. If we, do, if we do that, if that's the tone of our hearts, then we actually we do dishonor the Spirit who gave us the word. Because we're not applying it. Amen? So we can't dishonor the, the, the word of God, I mean the, the Holy Spirit in our lives, in our faith, in our life. And thirdly, in our witness to the world. And this is really what I want to looking forward into the, this year, I want to encourage you with. Because every single one of you, I'm sure, together with everyone who's been in this church, whether it's a month or 10 years, 11 years, every single one of us wants to see this church used to impact the community and to see many, many people saved into the kingdom. Who doesn't want that? Please raise your hands. Okay, I'm setting you up, I know, but of course we all want that. We all desperately want the kingdom to come and to see Jesus and for our worship to be this tangible expressions of God's heaven on earth. 
And we want people to be saved. And we want to see healing. And we want to see this place buzzing with people that are just set free and joyful. Anyone not want that? Of course we do. But I feel like God would say this to us at the beginning of the year as we look forward into the year. If we want that, this is a basic thing that we have to kind of adjust in our hearts and our heads. That we have to remember that it's Him alone, by His power, that brings life to what we speak and authenticates what we speak to the community by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I'm saying, in our hearts, are we looking to our cleverness and are looking really to the way that we might do things slickly and well and programs, or are we looking to the power of the Holy Spirit which is in us to bring life wherever we go and whatever we speak? Amen. Uh, is it going to be a year of ever-increasing gimmicks to kind of get people through the doors? Or is it going to be a year of ever-increasing prayer to say, God, without you, without your Spirit, this is impossible. I think it's something of the barrenness of the church. Now, I'm talking about the church at large. The church is because it's a measure of how truly people are open to the Holy Spirit or not. Are open to honoring the Spirit in their lives and the work of the Spirit in the church or not. I believe that. So then, can I encourage you? Can I say, let this year be a year of an increasing journey with the Holy Spirit where we increasingly honor Him, bring him give Him space in our meetings every time we get together in our families, in our parenting, in our marriage, that we keep our hearts soft and open and pliable and let the Holy Spirit come and bring life. Can we do that? This is not an accusation. This is an encouragement. Um, perhaps, perhaps you're nervous that I'm saying we're going to have like a certain kind of meeting or you've got something in your head that means that I've got no agenda. I promise you that. All I want is for God to come. <laughs> all, all, I, all I want is for the people of God to be encouraged and uh, that the church will be built. That's what I want. Are you with? You hearing what I'm saying? Amen. Can I pray? Holy Spirit, we do just um, come as your sons. We don't come as beggars. We, we come as your sons. We, we thank you for your work in our life. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your words that you inspired. The apostles wrote down, which brings life still today. We thank you that in your word there's absolute life. And Lord, our prayer this morning is simply that you would you would work in this church this year in an amazing way, that you work in our lives in an amazing way, every single one of us. Lord, that uh, our relationship with you would deepen, that we would know you as the great comforter in our own lives, that the same comfort that you give us, we would take and generously give away. We rejoice in these things this morning, Father. We say thank you so much for who you are. Holy Spirit, we honor you, we welcome you, celebrate your goodness to us. We ask that you come and move in power this year increasingly, in this church, just we had that amazing prophetic word come this morning, Lord, just speaking of a year of bounty and finding your grace for our life, the rhythm of your grace. God, I speak that over this community and, and thank you that you want to do that. I pray, Lord, that you'd teach us this year to honor you, to honor your word, to honor the work of your word in our lives, to respond to your work in our lives, not to harden our hearts when you, we hear you speak, that truly we become more and more like Jesus. We thank you for that. And Jesus, we, we thank you for your body. We thank you for your blood. We thank you for your body broken. We thank you for your blood shed. 
God, we want to celebrate around your table this morning with grateful, grateful hearts. We say thank you, Lord, for your body broken. Thank you that you were born in a stable. But thank you, Lord, that you lived and you died and you rose again. And because you did, we are free. We say thank you, Jesus. We want to celebrate around your table this morning with grateful hearts. We say thank you for your body broken. Thank you for your blood poured out. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you continue to lead us into all truth, that you set us free. We might become a community that speaks of the life and the love of Christ through our lives, through what you do in us. Pray this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.